is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This afternoon, Island Energy will officially mark the completion of five additional above-ground fuel storage tanks at its facility in Kapolei. CEO John Maurer stopped by our studios to talk about the company's part in helping to increase storage capacity for the military as it prepares to drain uh, the 100 million gallons of fuel in its underground tank facility at Red Hill. The process is currently set for mid-October. Maurer explains the push to get the work uh, on the above-ground tank facility completed over a 10-month period. I guess mid-2022, the Defense Logistics Agency, which is the procurement arm for the military, tendered a contract for fuel storage here on Oahu. And so we saw that as an opportunity for us to participate as a company. And so we bid into that RFP process and were awarded the contract in October of 2022. And so, you know, with that contract, they were looking for a million and a half barrels of storage to store fuel here on Oahu. And so since that time, we've been working very diligently to get that facility built and completed so that we could add to our existing capabilities out in Kapolei at our terminal. Tell us about what you folks had to construct in order to make this happen. So we have a, already a large facility in Kapolei to store and import fuels to service the islands here in Hawaii. And so the military was looking for additional storage beyond our current capacity. And so we went through a process to not only build new storage, but also to repurpose and recondition a number of tanks that we already had at the facility. And so we've optimized, I would say, our capabilities as a company to not just provide fuel to or fuel storage for the military, but our other commercial and, and retail and industrial customers as well. So the work is completed and you're ready to go? Yeah, the work is largely completed. There are a few remaining items we still have to finish, but by and large, the fuel storage is available and the military has now other assets to begin storing fuel here in Oahu. And then I have to ask, because I know that the military did have and does have above ground tanks. And at one time they were using the AFFF, you know, firefighting foam, you know, to be able just to protect the facility in, in event of a fire. So what type of fire suppression systems are, are you folks using? So we have um, our own emergency response brigade. So our trained employees who are on site and capable of providing fire, you know, fire suppression support. We also have a mutual aid agreement with PAR Hawaii, who also has a facility out in Kapolei. And then ultimately, Hawaii Fire Department is, is there to help provide additional support should that be needed. And then do you use uh, the AFFF? Because I know the military says that they are moving away from that old system. So we are moving away from AFFF. Today we have it. We, we don't, there are certain regulations and laws in place that prevent testing and using of that unless it's an absolute emergency. And so our expectation is over time, we'll be able to replace that with a different alternative. But for the time being, we have it on site in case, of, you know, a very unfortunate circumstance that we don't anticipate, but you do need to be prepared. Have we had any leaks with AFFF, you know, at that facility? No, not at our facility. No. Okay. No, I mean, all. and I think we're just learning more about this AFFF and the forever chemicals, you know, in light of the, the spill that the military had. So everybody is now keenly aware. And then we had lots of new rules that the EPA is handing down uh, just to protect our environment in general, just about some of these chemicals that uh, are more hazardous than we knew at the time. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and we're looking at that. We take that very seriously. You know, some of our foundational principles are protecting the environment, making sure we're doing the right things. And as we find alternatives to, you know, step away from the AFFF into different products, we're working towards that as a company. Your tanks there at the facility, are they being used to store any of the tanks from the Red Hill Underground storage facilities now, or will it be just future uh, fuel that comes into the islands? Yeah, so our contract with the Defense Logistics Agency is to provide fuel storage. You know, how they choose to use that storage is really at their discretion. And so should they want to reposition fuel from Red Hill to our storage facility, that's certainly an option. But again, that's all at their discretion. And, and so we're just there as an alternative for their fuel storage needs. And so you know, hopefully we'll see in the coming you know, weeks to months as how they're going through their operations to defuel. You know, some of that could come to us. It, again, it's, that is entirely up to the DLA and how they see best fit. So for folks who don't know much about Island Energy, you know, what's the, the 10,000 foot view in your history here? Yeah. So Island Energy Services, we've been around as a local headquartered company here for the past over six years now. We acquired the facility and operations from Chevron here in Hawaii back in late 2016. 
And so since that time, we've been running more as an independent company. We started with a refining operation and made a decision to shut that down in late 2018 and get out of the refining business and transforming it more to importing products rather than manufacturing them here. And so over the last several years, we've been really working to repurpose our assets and become really a world scale importer of fuels to the state of Hawaii. So what's the snapshot? Like how large is the company? How many uh, workers do you employ? Yeah, so we have about 250 employees here in Hawaii. You know, through our assets, we move around 25,000 barrels a day of fuel. And so that service is not just commercial accounts like the airlines that you would be familiar with, but we also sell fuel and move it to utility companies uh, across the neighbor islands as well. And we also have the network of the Texaco stations, nearly 60 Texacos across the islands of Hawaii, where we market and sell the gasoline fuels, you know, Texaco with Tecron is our, our brand proposition to our, our motoring customers. We do have operations on the neighbor islands in, in Kahului on Maui, in Port Allen in Kauai. And then on the big island, we have a terminal operation in Hilo, as well as some retail stations, both on Maui and on the big island in Hilo, where it's actually our own station where we own and operate it with our own employees. And then uh, as far as your footprint, you're mainly out in Kapolei, but you also have facilities in town near Honolulu Harbor. Yeah, no, correct. We have our main our main terminal and operation and headquarters are out in Kapolei, out in the industrial park, Campbell Industrial Park. And we also have a large terminal in Honolulu, which serves as kind of the distribution hub for the islands. And so we'll, we pipeline fuel, we import it into Kapolei. And from there, we'll move it down by pipeline to our terminal in Honolulu, where we can load a barge. And that barge takes all the different fuels to the neighbor islands on a, we, we like to kind of refer to it as the milk run. We'll take gasoline and jet fuel and diesel fuel and naphtha, whatever the customers need on a regular basis to make sure they have the energy they need to support their day-to-day living and, and the tourism and other parts of the economy. I think when you stop and pause and consider all the industries across the state, you know, support the economy and the fuel that they need in order to keep operating. I mean, it, it, it is pretty amazing. Yeah, we, we see that as a, a huge responsibility for our company. We have a phenomenal organization, dedicated, they're knowledgeable, they're experienced, and they take it with a great degree of responsibility that they have to ensure that Hawaii has the energy and the fuel they need to get about with their daily lives. I mean, we kind of take it for granted, but get the kids to school, you got to get to work, you want to take a trip to go visit auntie and uncle neighbor islands, all these things that we kind of take for granted, but energy is really at the root of all of that. And without that, you know, things would come to a grinding stop. So. We as a company and you know take that responsibility very seriously, not just to provide it, but to do it safely, reliably, environmentally sound to make sure that we're not having negative impacts to you know living and working here in Hawaii. Yeah, and what we saw happen, you know, with Red Hill and the fuel getting in the water, that, that was very unfortunate. But I think it's really now focused people's awareness on okay, the infrastructure and you know, that's that was a very old facility. And while a lot of the emphasis was on the maintenance of the tanks, I think the problems with the pipelines, I think, were troublesome. Mm -hmm. And so what can you tell us, you know, how can you assure the public that, you know, the the piping system that you have is is sound and, and not leaking? We have our own mechanical integrity team our own employees and we also you know contract with some third parties to help support us in areas where we don't have those exact resources or expertise and so we do routine piping inspections that are required not just by department of transportation federal government us coast guard has oversight in our operations as well and so again it goes back to the heart of our responsibility to making sure that we're maintaining the assets maintaining the mechanical integrity so that we don't have to worry about leaks or spills or things getting into the environment and when there is a spill, those are reportable to the Ab- health department. Ab- absolutely. As a company, we not only track if there is a spill that needs to be reported, but if there's a small release that's even not reportable, those things come to my attention as the head of the company to make sure that we understand what happened. Has it all been rectified? Has it been cleaned up? Are there any issues that we need to resolve? And these are very, very serious things that we take a lot of responsibility for. And then do you see, I don't know, any other opportunities for expansion? I mean, because obviously there's a lot of military uh, money coming our way with the shipyard modernization. I don't know anything at this point that Island Energy is looking down the road. 
Yeah. So I mean, having completed this large project for the Defense Logistics Agency, we've put in place a bunch of storage. You know, there might, who knows, maybe there's more opportunity for that. That's again at their decision, but we're certainly available to you know, provide additional storage should they need that. One of the things we think about as a company going forward is renewable fuels. So today we have, you know, the traditional legacy fuels that we're all very familiar with, but in the coming years, we expect those fuels to transition to more renewable fuels, things like biodiesel, renewable diesel, or sustainable aviation fuels. And so we as a company over the last several years have been working with global suppliers of those fuels, as well as, you know, local potential customers who would be taking advantage of that going forward. And we have been hearing more about hydrogen fuel and that I think we're at a crossroads and we're waiting to hear back on a big federal grant that could be coming our way. How are you folks looking at alternative fuels like that? Yeah, we're, we're very much involved with the hydrogen hub here in Hawaii. And so being a energy focused company, hydrogen is another form of energy. And we're very interested in participating in that. You know, we've been engaged and actively supporting the hydrogen hub, providing our expertise and resources into how we can help, you know, store and transport hydrogen, not just here in Oahu, but in between the islands as part of that overall submission that went to the Department of Energy. And is it, I don't know, trickier to store and deal with than, than conventional fuels? Hydrogen has its difficulties. It's different than what you would traditionally think of as like gasoline or jet fuel. It typically needs to be stored at high pressures or you have to liquefy it. And by doing so, you have to cool it down to very, very low temperatures in order to maintain it in a liquid form. So there are some challenges that are different and distinct when you're dealing with hydrogen, but it's all within the capabilities and things that we have experience as a prior refining operation. We're very familiar with how hydrogen behaves and, and managing that as a fuel. So it's, it's all in part of what we do, but it is a bit different than what we would typically see in terms of you know, what we have prior experience with things like gasoline or jet fuel or diesel. Okay. All right. But there's lots of uh, possibilities out there as we look down the road. Hawaii is an interesting place in terms of what's going to happen in the energy landscape. And with our assets, our experience, our operations, we're very excited to participate in how that may play out in the, in the coming years. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. That was John Maurer, CEO of Island Energy Services. The company's holding a blessing this afternoon at Kapolei for the five above-ground fuel storage tanks. They are being made available uh, for the military to use as part of a plan to defuel and shut down the Red Hill underground fuel storage facility. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Group International, presenting Brazilian songstress Bebel Gilberto, live at Hawaii Theater, September 21st. Ticket information at hawaiitheater.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Kathy Wild, author of Wild Ideas, Creativity from the Inside Out. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about using the creative process for personal transformation. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. While Maui firefighters continued to work to extinguish wildfires around the island, the potential impact on their physical and psychological well-being becomes more and more apparent. University of Hawaii at Hilo psychology professor Chris Free co-authored an article that was released earlier this month. It details what he calls firefighter syndrome. It maps the accumulation of the physical, psychological, neurological, and hormonal injuries sustained by firefighters and how it impacts their short and long-term health. Earlier uh, in his career, Free similarly worked with combat veterans to identify the various injuries they sustained and how it impacted their long-term health. The conversations Russell Subiono talked with Free about firefighter syndrome and how we can better address the unique, unique needs of first responders. So I'm a PTSD expert in theory, and I can in principle. What I found was my expertise with PTSD did not really did not prepare me to help or to work with military special operators because their injuries, some of them have PTSD or elements of PTSD, but so much else. 
So I was doing this work. We published a paper and we called it Operator Syndrome in 2020. And a few months later, a Canadian firefighter reached out to me, um, a woman named J.D. Miller, career firefighter. And she said, firefighters have some of these same similar kinds of problems, different but similar. So we've spent a couple of years mapping the experience and injuries of firefighters. And that's what we published two weeks ago in an online magazine called Crackle, which is a firefighter magazine. That came out just almost at the same time as the Lahaina fires, just by sheer coincidence. But we think we've got some ideas that can be useful for the long-term health and wellness of the responder community. And, and law enforcement has some similar problems too, and we've got some, some things that are in the works on that. That's pretty interesting that the work that started with combat veterans is very similar or parallel to firefighters. I mean, the word fight is in the title of their job, right? Mm -hmm. And so what did you find that firefighters specifically were subject to or had to endure? Were they exactly the same as as some of the combat veterans or are there some things that are specific to the firefighting job? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we could say very generally the Mm -hmm. framework of TBI, hormonal disruption, sleep, pain, psychological issues is very, very similar, but then there are some very unique issues for each. For example, military special operators, they have a lot of blast wave exposures, you know, training with demolitions, shoulder fired rockets, combat. So they have a set, a pattern of very unique injuries to their brain caused by the shearing effect of blast waves going through them. Firefighters don't have that per se, but but boy, they sure breathe in a lot of toxic chemicals and smoke. They inhale things, they swallow things that are that are in their environments. Certainly the work is very dangerous. It's very can be very physically challenging. It's it's physically dangerous. It's also psychologically potentially very traumatic, very, very stressful for people. My colleagues who are firefighters, I don't want to say it's an everyday occurrence, but once in a while they have a child that they are trying to save and are unable to, or an unresponsive child, or a fire, structure fire, where somebody doesn't make it out alive, or they're using the jaws of life to help to extract somebody from a motor vehicle accident. And they see the casualties in their own units. Sometimes it's a firefighter, another firefighter that doesn't survive, doesn't get out of a burning structure. You have the shift work nature of what they're doing. So the sleep is, it's not like I go to bed at the same time every night in my bed at home. I get up in the morning. I've had, you know, a good, you know, chunk of time consistently with no interruptions. They have a 24 or a 48 hour shift potentially where they may be getting calls constantly. There may not be much sleep at night. If they do get a few minutes of sleep, it may be disrupted by a siren and, and going out on a call. So you have those kinds of experiences that really affect their ability to get into a regular circadian sleep pattern. And then take, take that home, take that stressful 48 hour shift and now go home to a family, maybe children and all that stuff you're carrying. Uh, maybe it's pain, maybe it's you're tired and you're irritable. Maybe it's you, you just are mad because some really bad stuff happened today and you're not in a mood to, you know, to be, friendly and cheerful with your family. That becomes hard. I feel like firefighters, you know, maybe they have a a coping mechanism to get them through, you know, their day off or their four days off to get to the next shift. But as these things kind of compile, you know, what do the long-term effects look like? What should they be watching out for, you know, over the course of their 10, 20 year career? So yes, we can talk about psychiatric disorders like depression, PTSD, addiction, but we also have to be mindful that there are physiological injuries happening and we can't truly separate mental from physical. And if if we're mindful of that, we're ahead of the game. These injuries are all interrelated. So if you have a TBI, you're less likely to sleep well. If you're not sleeping well, you're more likely to become depressed and irritable and angry. If you're irritable and angry and depressed, you're more likely to have family problems. You're more likely to drink to excess. To treat these disorders in isolation is suboptimal. If I only treat 
somebody's PTSD, but I don't pay any attention to their hormones. I'm missing something really important. And we don't do this. Typically in modern medicine, we don't do hormonal testing when somebody presents with the what looks like depression or a psychiatric disorder. And yet low testosterone for a man and many other types of hormonal dysregulations are going to make low T will make a man look depressed, irritable. It's going to mess up his sleep. Uh, it's going to change his body and muscle composition. It's going to affect his motivation and his energy levels. Um, it's going to change him. If we treat that with an antidepressant medication, that may have a small effect, but it's not really affecting a root a very important root cause in that case. So for example, what would I say to firefighters today? I would make a series of recommendations and, and they're actually in that Crackle article that, that we published, but it's ask for a sleep study, ask for hormonal study if you haven't had one, ask for, seek out a heavy metal testing, get, get tested for heavy metals. Go from there. What hurts? What's not functioning? Get these things checked out. Modern medicine is very fragmented. You're going to go to 10 different clinics to get all this stuff addressed, which is, you know, it's not the best way to do it. So the research that you've done, the solutions that have formed out of the research that you've done is a more holistic approach to addressing yeah. the, the issues. Yeah. And holistic meaning all of the body symptoms all of the body systems. So we call it whole systems approach, your respiratory system, your nervous system, your skeletal system, your muscular system, your endocrine system, et cetera, plus the systems around you. So your family system, your community system, your work system, what's the culture in your, in your firehouse? What's the, what's the relationship of firefighters to management? How do firefighters work with law enforcement? Probably all of this is way more than anybody is able to digest or use yeah. right now this week at this moment. Right. But going forward, there's a lot of solutions that we can offer the firefighting community if they want them. What would you say to a firefighter here in Hawaii? And I, I don't know if our firefighters are that much different than ones, say, on the continent or elsewhere in the world. But I feel like culturally, our firefighters feel like it's their responsibility to take care of their family and to be strong for their family. And maybe they don't feel they have time to focus on themselves, or maybe there's a little bit of shame for them in being in a vulnerable state to talk about what they're going through. What would you say to those firefighters who, you know, know they need some help, but maybe feel like culturally it yeah. goes against yeah. what they should be doing? Yeah. yeah. I would say what I would what I would say to an operator, which is you're not alone. Part of the value of this firefighter syndrome paper is to kind of communicate that, that these are the expected normal outcomes of a career, of a dangerous career that you've chosen. So our firefighters are our protectors. They protect their families and their communities. We all need them and rely on them, but they're otherwise invisible to us most of the time. It's only when we have a crisis that we're glad to see them show up. And you're right, there is a culture, there is an attitude of we're here to protect and to serve and we subjugate or we, re, we kind of mitigate, minimize our own needs. And the focus isn't on us as injured individuals, it's, on the, it's outward on the community. We need to turn that around a little bit and we need to help everybody, civilians and society, included to understand what our protectors, whether it's military or first responders, what they are experiencing in the types of ways in which their work on our behalf injures them. We could do a whole lot better in terms of taking care of our responders. That was UH Hilo psychology professor Chris Free talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to that article Free co-authored for the online firefighter magazine Crackle on the conversation page of our website later today.
Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, offering courses for ages 50 and older, now with new community college locations. Fall term begins September 18th. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. Support for HPR comes from Bank of Hawaii, partnering with the Hawaii Community Foundation and its Maui Strong Fund in this time of need. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong, member FDIC. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat today looks at the economic fallout of the wildfires in Lahaina. Paula Dobbin joins us today. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Catherine. Well, I must say, you know, reading your story, you have a picture that says a thousand words. It's a lot of all the rental cars that are just sitting around. Yes, it is a really obvious sign of the economic distress that the island is experiencing these days. Um, just a sea of idled rental cars there in front of Kahului Airport. Um, you know, the numbers that are being released by economists these days are really disturbing. Um, some of those are in my story, but, you know, travel to the island is way, way down. And um, obviously, you know, hotel rooms, there's like a 90% vacancy rate in South Maui. Um, clearly, West Maui is totally closed because of the fires. Um, you know, visitor spending is down by about um, $13 million a day, according to University of Hawaii. Um, you know, the, the amount of tax money going into um, county coffers as well as the state government is also, you know, down in the millions of dollars. So it's pretty bleak, pretty bleak. Well, you know, we did have mixed messages. I know folks were saying, well, you know, uh, Lahaina and, and that side of the island is closed, but hey, the rest of Maui is open. But somehow, you know, the national media, international media, uh, some of that message, I think, got skewed. Uh, but it sounds like, you know, things may be easing somewhat. We understand that the cruise lines have decided to resume the stop uh, in Maui. Yes, uh, we did report that in the story, but, um, you know, I, I really think that, um, you know, if if people want tourism to resume on Maui, there's going to have to be a much clearer and stronger message. And, and that was actually in my story, too. I, I quoted the uh, president of the Hawaii Hotel Alliance saying that, you know, we really do need a stronger message saying, like, the rest of the island is open for business um, and we welcome tourists. But... I think probably a lot of tourists are a little bit hesitant. You know, they, they realize that the island is suffering, you know, major, major trauma right now. And maybe there's a sentiment that, like, does it really make sense to go to a place and, you know, go on whale watching trips and snorkeling excursions and things like that while, while people are really suffering? Um, and so I can see why there might be some hesitancy on the part of tourists to come back. But on the other hand, so much of the island's economy is underpinned by tourism so unless people come back it's going to be a lot more economic suffering happening there's many many people signing up for unemployment benefits you know many people are considering leaving the island if they haven't left already so um you know it's really it's really a conundrum um i, I was able to reach out to the um hawaii tourism authority and, and they're taking you know kind of a balanced approach like listening to survivors saying that, you know, this is maybe not the time to come here, um, but also, you know, talking to um, business owners who are struggling, having to lay off workers or reduce their hours. And so, um, you know, their message is that, you know, do come to the open parts of, of Maui, which is basically everywhere except the west side. But, um, you know, Malama, uh, Maui, if you do come, come with a good intention, you know, consider maybe volunteering some of your time to one of the organizations that's helping with the, the recovery, um, you know, maybe plant some native trees, like there's constructive things that you could do for the island if you decide to come here. 
Yeah, no, that's a nice thought. I mean, I know people do want to be respectful. They want to be sensitive during this time. Uh, but there is a segment of the community that does depend on the uh, tourism industry, and they're hurting right now. I think the figure was like 70% of every dollar that's earned on Maui is tied to tourism. So, you know, it's a huge industry. And um, for the island to get back on its feet, we do need the tourists to come back. So, you know, it'll take time. But I think, you know, many of the people that I've interviewed over the past, you know, three weeks or so just emphasize how resilient um, the island is. And you know, it wasn't too long ago. The island was also shut down because of COVID. Um, so, you know, although this is a very different type of tragedy, um, you know, there is this sense that, um, you know, Maui is strong and, and people will recover from this. It just might take some time. All right. Well, thank you so much, Paula. Thank you. That was reporter Paula Dobbin with today's Reality Check. Uh, read her story at civilbeat.org. now we have felt the deep pain coming out of the wildfires we've also shared stories about healing and today we go to hpr reporter kuve hirishi who is out in the field there in maui good morning kuve good morning Catherine. i am currently in wailuku so far away uh, from ground zero there in uh, lahaina but as you mentioned we're getting into week four uh, since the fire psychological and mental toll of the entire experience on the people of Lahaina is really starting to take hold if it hasn't already. Uh, Moli Itaro farmer Kekai Kiahi, whose family comes from Mala, uh, the Mala area of Lahaina, says his days are filled with meetings with lawyers, government officials, other community members. Uh, he's also spending his time delivering goods to uh, folks in the burn zone, so uh, off limits to the rest of the public, but still in their homes, and, and also fielding interviews with folks like us. Uh, but fortunately for him, uh, the fire did go around uh, his home, but he's still without electricity and a running water, uh, which can contribute, of course, to the, an already stressful situation. But Kiahi uh, says he's been dealing with sleepless nights, lots of stress, lots of sadness, and very little time to process any of that. And he, like many in the Native Hawaiian community, are really struggling with that strong sense of kuleana. Here's Kiai. My heart's saying keep on fighting. But people tell me you need to be healthy physically and mentally, and you got to step away sometimes. And for me, stepping away is like letting people down. But from what I was told, it's not you not. You're just making yourself stronger so you can be on a stronger fighter. And so this weekend, that is a game plan. I, I'm going to meet with some people this weekend, but after that, I'm just going to be up there in the tower patches and just kind of kicking back, you know, just kind of getting my refocus and my energy back. So, And I get what they say. So, you know, i got to be strong for myself so I can be strong for other people. Yes, how true that is. You know, you've got to you dig deep, but at some point you've got to exhale. Right, and that's what he's he's thinking here. And you know, day three or the week three, he's been going nonstop. He flew to Oahu for press conferences and is you know meeting around the around the clock. But he's saying he's going to Honokohau Valley uh, later this weekend uh, to work in those taro patches. And there are hundreds, if not if not thousands, of Lahaina residents displaced by this fire and sort of living in limbo. Lahaina boat captain Kiao Shaw lost his home in the fire. He lived uh, just two minutes from Lahaina Harbor. He and his wife, Eva, own a tour boat company, and they lost one of their boats in the fire, and their two children, a three- and five-year-old, lost their schools, a holy innocence of preschool, and then, of course, uh, Kamehameha, the third elementary school. Uh, we reached out to him just a few days after the fire, and I was able to visit him in his not-yet-finished home in Honokohau. Here's Shaw. I'm lucky I have a family place in Honokohau, uh, but my kids are in Oahu. The house isn't done up here, so I'm just kind of like living, been living on an air mattress for a while. There's no water still in Honokohau. A lot of people are still waiting for the water to get turned back on. 
Oh, if I flush the toilet, I have to go to the river and get a bucket of water. If I want to wash dishes, I got to get a bucket of water. Uh, and I get drinking water from town. I fill up some jugs. Yeah, people are just trying to cope, right? With just the daily stuff. It is it's just the daily stuff. And, you know, uh, Shaw says he, he has received a, an overwhelming amount of support from the community, his family and friends. Uh, but he is concerned about his business, as, as uh, Paula was saying earlier on the Civil Beat uh, reality check. You know, how soon can he start up again? He's got 10 employees who have also, most of them, lost their homes and their livelihoods. And he wants to get them back to work. He doesn't want to leave Lahaina. Uh, but he says, you know, it is an option. He's from Hilo and Eva, also from his wife from Oahu. So that may be something they are uh, considering. But for those whose families have called West Maui for generations, concerns over what could come next for their hometown has been the cause of stress, anxiety, and frustration. Uh, Kaua'ula Taro farmer and Kulana land owner Charlie Pal. Palakiko's family lost their homes in the 2018 fire there in Lahaina. And, you know, these families have been instrumental in getting the state to abide by the state water code and then restore that Malkatumakai stream flow. Uh, but those recent statements from Governor Josh Green blaming communities like Kaua'ula and their fight to get the state to honor those protections was really a triggering one. And many, uh, not just for Palakiko, but many in the Native Hawaiian community in Lahaina. Uh, the subsequent calls for the suspension of those protections and other uh, protections have Polakiko and others on edge in what is already a, a stressful situation. But he says he's, you know, found a way to process this this trauma, this sadness, and this stress. Here's Polakiko. It's so much going on that it's just crazy. And now we're in this big battle. Thing got so political. How can from this fire went straight political and now we then the water got involved, the fighting for water. It's like then our Rights might be even taken away from us. Oh, this is bull, bro. I cannot believe this kind of stuff. We went 18 years, you know, hard for go 18, 20, 20 years. It's hard for go all those years, get somewhere, and then all of that is just taken from you, just like that. Just like that, now gone. There it went. It's just really hard to take in, you know. I tell you, you hurt inside, <laughs> but I tell you, I... So I come out here and I work, because when I'm working like this, this is when I can really brain about things and process. This is when I process everything. Yeah, all about coping, uh, you know, because you think of one loss and that's a 10, right, on a scale of 1 to 10. And then you compound it with the children's loss of the school and the, the, the jobs and the stress of the water rights. Oh, my goodness. Right. He calls it therapy. <laughs> in terms of therapy, uh, Palakiko does, and, you know, we heard that from Kiahi. He's headed to the tarot patches in, in Honokohau, but um, Palakiko is hoping he had his daughter and some of her friends come to the tarot patch the day that uh, I was able to uh, meet up with him. And, you know, just that idea of getting your hands dirty, working out that stress while also um, planting some food and, and helping with, the tarot patches has been something that I think has brought uh, folks in the community a lot of joy. Yes, uh, and, and so, did, you know there there have been uh, you know so many groups that are helping to to try and um, ease the pain, you know, and help with the healing. Whether it's uh, you know looking to the aina or looking to the ocean, uh, you know, how can we help uh, the people in the town recover? That's exactly it, and that's something that uh, we're seeing uh, here on the ground, and that's going to be even more um, sort of a goal, I think, of what the community needs. And aside from all the help and donations and, and supplies, it's going to be these opportunities to really work out some of that, that trauma, that stress, and, and that sadness. Okay, all right. Well, you take care over there uh, as well. Uh, but thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HBR reporter Ku'uvehi Reishi reporting from Maui. Read more of her stories online uh, at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. Mahalo for supporting our neighbors on Maui who have been impacted by the recent fires. Thanks to you, Hawaii Public Radio has raised over $200,000 for Maui. 100% of these donations will go to Hawaii Community Foundation's Maui Strong Fund. Your contributions will help over 50 nonprofits on the ground provide the critical care that Maui's residents need right now. Mahalo for your generosity and solidarity. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and communities affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. from today, Paloma Settlement is opening its doors for an event to celebrate its history and the people who helped to make it a safe place for children to dream and to help a community grow strong and thrive. That's how it was for former NFL football player Chris Maafala and his siblings. Take a listen. My two older siblings, um, even though they were outstanding, they were outstanding athletes, they kind of had to hide and do it behind my parents' back. But when my dad, you know, at, at his job, would find, would uh, people would come up and say, hey, do you know these kids? They have your last name. And they're on the paper, the front, you know, front of the paper. So <laughs> that was, a, I, I guess, our introduction to, to Palama Settlement and sports. And the NFL player will be on hand at next week's event. Like Maafala, Paula Rath has deep roots in the neighborhood. It's her family's legacy that she has worked tirelessly to continue. She explains what's in store for next week, Thursday night. It's called Reflections of Palama. And we interviewed 16 people who we call narrators. And four of those narrators will be present at the event, and there will be very brief segments of their oral histories, followed by their being asked questions by Dr. Daviana McGregor from the Center for Oral History. So it will be a little smattering of what we have learned over the last year. Through the grant, which was provided by the Hawaii Council on the Humanities, and I've been a journalist in the past, but I was trained to do the oral histories by the Center for Oral History. So it's a partnership of the three organizations, and it's just been such an education for all of us. We chose people ages 41 to 95. We chose people who represent former staff, athletes, artists, board members, teachers, coaches, program administrators, and of course, Brother Noland, who is very famous <laughs> around Palama circles, having worked with us for decades in different capacities. So they also represented many different nationalities, Samoan, Hawaiian, Scots, Filipino, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Mel Kaneshige, who describes himself as Hapa, Okinawan, and Japanese, and is happy to explain that. <laughs> so the project definitely brings a lot of heart because that's what Palama's all about. And the folks that are taking part in this, I mean, they all got their start here at Palama Settlement? Well, some of them got their start here, and some of them became board members in later years. But they all have a close connection, and they were selected for that reason. And this is a passion project for you because of your ties to Palama Settlement. Yes. My grandparents were the founders, James Arthur and Rania Helsherath. And my father was born and raised here and literally grew up as a barefoot Palama boy. 
And my mother spent over 10 years creating the Palama archives. So I kind of grew up here too, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a lovely facility for folks who have not been here. You know, there's a lovely pool. You've got all these activities for the kids. You've got digital classes for adults. I mean, I just was amazed just being in your lobby, seeing, you know, what you offer to the community. And we've got kids in there learning anime right now. (laughs) And we've got pickleball players. We have in our, our gym is big enough for five pickleball courts indoors and two outdoors. And we've introduced water polo recently in our pool. So yes, we've, we've got a lot of really great things going on at Palama Settlement. And I guess, you know, since you've just come off of a big anniversary, you know, for the settlement, you know, I mean. 25 years. And so you have, as part of the research, you know, for this anniversary, you have been able to pull together all the archives and you've got boxes of rich history that detail stories of the settlement. Yes, we do. And the oral histories add a great deal. Our first oral histories were done for the centennial, which was 1996. And there were 29 of them. And of those, more than half of the people who were narrators at that time have passed away. So we really, 125 years was a wake-up call. It's time to do it again. It's another generation. We have a fabulous, extremely qualified archivist, Sidney Louie, who is in the midst of a digitization project. My mother's work was just the beginning, and her work actually went through 1980. And now we have from 1980 to 2023, (laughs) which is in Sydney's lap. So uh, we have volunteers assisting with that. We have some of our scholarship students who receive Palama scholarships also helping out. And we are really gathering resources to have our archives digitized. Now, the oral histories will be available through a program called Scholar Space, which you access through the University of Hawaii. And our oral histories, the recordings, and the transcripts will both be available. By the end of the year, they all 16 will be available. But in time for September 7th, we will have two available. And one of the benefits of attending our event is you'll learn how to find these oral histories, which are absolutely fascinating. A lot of great surprises came up. When you're doing an oral history, it can go in a lot of different directions. And some of them are surprising, but all of them are interesting. And when you get people talking about their small kid time, and they talk about, oh, you know, when I, when I was a paper boy in Palolo, <laughs> and when I was playing ukulele on the steps at Pua Lane, and when I was swimming or getting my teeth fixed or going to canteen dances at Palama. And we, um, we have some just wonderful voices that are coming through these oral histories. And it's so important. You had shared that someone mentioned where they were and what they were doing on December 7th. 7th. Yes. Epi Kerr, who is now 95, remembers being a, a little girl boarding at Punahou on December 7th, 1941. And she has some very vivid memories. But one of them is that they did not get breakfast the next morning because the army got their breakfast first. And so the girls learned they had to get up earlier in the morning, before six, to get their breakfast. And Albert Wong, who's 92, was told where his father was on December 7th. His father was with Mr. Ai the person who started City Mill, and the two of them were working on bundling things for the poor, and they heard noises on the tin roof, and 
they were baffled and they went outside and there was shrapnel falling on the city mill roof. So there are all these really interesting and so many fascinating cultural stories that come out. Karisma Afala, who is the youngest of 11 children, talked a great deal about it, what it meant to be a child living in the projects and then be discovered because he played football at Palama Settlement. And St. Louis recognized his abilities and he went on to the NFL. And Tupu Alu Alu talked about what chieftain, chieftain means to Samoan people. There were picture brides talked about by many people. They are absolutely wonderful stories and they are all connected with Palama Settlement. And that was Paul Rath, whose family planted the seed for a community center that has flourished uh, more than a century in our Hawaii, Hawaii Nei. And it's hosting an event a week from today at Palama Settlement's Dining Hall, which will highlight oral histories of its rich past and the many hands who have helped build the foundation of a thriving and diverse neighborhood. The Neighborhood Clubhouse is the heart of something beautiful, which will be celebrated at the settlement next Thursday night in a free oral history event starting at 530. It will include many who have built successful careers around their passion, including musician Brother Nolan. His hit Pua Lane is a nod to the hard knock life in the projects and the power of making dreams come true thanks to places like Palama Settlement. Yes, tears always fall from my eyes when we think of the way that we live. I said bye bye Pua Lane, so so long Pua Lane. Oh dear God, I hope that all my friends don't know, don't shatter their Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we plan a Hanaho show for Aloha Friday, Saving Seeds. Got a memory to share about Palama Settlement or living in Lahaina? Call or talk back line. Record something for us, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something else you heard? Find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.